you don't wake up every morning hoping to be surprised and delighted nonstop from the minute you open your eyes till the time you go to bed, you know, 16 hours later or whenever it is. Uh, you know, you, you what really gets you through the day are, you know, periods that are about routine and habituation and comfort in a way, right? And um, and and one of the things that, you know, if you want to call it brands or design or, you know, how we shape the material world is, you know, providing people with the, the kind of just visual and experiential cues that help them work their way through that, uh, you know, through, through, you know, an environment that's, you know, complicated and uh, potentially bewildering. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum, from world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify, to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Michael Beirut. Michael's worked as a graphic designer for over five decades. His first job after graduating from the University of Cincinnati was for Massimo Vignelli, where he worked for 10 years. He then became a partner at the New York office of Pentagram, where he's worked for the last 32. He was well recognized in the industry. He's a member of the Allianz Graphique International, the Art Directors Club Hall of Fame, and was awarded our profession's highest honor, the IGEA Medal, in 2006. He was named winner at the Design Mind category of the Cooper Hewitt National Design Awards. He's been a senior critic in graphic design at the Yale School of Art and a lecturer at the Yale School of Management. He's published multiple books, including 79 essays on design, how to use graphic design to sell things, explain things, make things look better, make people laugh, make people cry, and every once in a while, change the world. And now you should see it and other essays on design. He's still married to the first girl he ever kissed, has three children and two grandchildren. In this episode, we talk about how he is as unsure about branding as he's ever been, how skepticism can help us make better decisions about what and where we apply a brand, and how everything and nothing has changed in the five decades of his career. Enjoy. Michael, it's a great honor to have you on the podcast. This has been on my list for so long. So thank you for joining us today. Great. Very happy to be here. Now, you said something I didn't expect when we did our pre-call, which is that you're as unsure about branding as you've always been today. I'd love to understand from you sort of, why that is and and what is it that's making you unsure about branding today um i think it's like it's several factors um 
part of it just has to do with the um, uh, the different ways we communicate now and the different ways we take in information. I think that the classic model of branding, at least the one that I grew up with, and I've been doing this for 40 years, so you can imagine I was educated in the 70s and I started working professionally in the 80s. So um, 80s, 90s, aughts, teens, you know, this is like the fifth decade I've been doing this thing. And um, Branding as a discipline with a capital B always seemed really well suited from my point of view, or as I understood it, to like sort of a top down command and control sort of model of communication. And in fact, one of the things that was really interesting, and I'll confess, even exciting, enticing to me as a really young person kind of coming to understand what graphic design was as a profession had a lot to do with the fact that um, doing professional graphic design, you know, uh, getting things typeset, getting things printed and distributed was a, you know, was a, um, a specialized activity that was reserved for, you know, highly trained people with access to specialized knowledge and, uh, and often money and or influence in order to kind of put those things into action, right? So, uh, um, you know, I would see, you know, magazines in, on a newsstand, or I would see a poster at a movie theater or a uh, uh, graphics on a record sleeve. And those things, you know, I didn't just admire them because they were, you know, aesthetically exciting to me. They also conveyed a certain amount of authority, you know, uh, um, a band that had managed to get a contract with Columbia Records and then had their cover designed by, uh, uh, you know, by John Berg at Columbia to, you know, that that sort of bespoke a whole engine of, uh, of, of activity that had been put into motion in far off places like New York or Los Angeles. And I was in the middle of the country, you know, in, in, uh, in uh, you know in the American Midwest in Ohio, you know, far away from those capitals. Right. And, you know, I'd never, you know, I'd, I'd been with friends who messed around with bands and garages, but the idea of recording something professionally, <laughs> never mind pressing and mass producing a record, never mind designing a, a sleeve that could go on that record. Oh, that just was as remote as, you know, um, you know, uh, operating a nuclear reactor or going to Mars, you know, it's like, it was, it was kind of like, it was completely outside my grasp. And so even the slight taste of those things, you know, uh, the first time I came by a piece of dry transfer lettering, uh, what we call press type in the United States, uh, generically, uh, yeah, Letraset, things like Letraset, Charpak, things like that to kind of like rub down a succession of letters and have it come out looking like a magazine advertisement just was like, just thrilling. It was like all of a sudden, um, you know, uh, suddenly being put behind the controls of a jet fighter, you know, airplane <laughs> or something, you know, uh, well, really and, and without any previous qualifications. Right. And so, um, uh, you know, by the time someone caused a logo to be designed and imprinted on things and sort of like played out as a brand or even to the degree you consider, you know, a characteristic, um, you know, the sticky fingers symbol, you know, the, the, the mouth symbol for the Rolling Stones, uh, you know, a brand for that band. 
you know, uh, um, you know, those things all just seem like, you know, people had decided these things in a far off places and, um, and caused them to kind of somehow, you know, enter my consciousness in the middle of nowhere in Ohio. Right. And so the, so, so branding to me, you know, had at that point, this sort of allure where it was kind of this, you know, uh, shorthand for, uh, um, you know, for authority and, uh, and, um, and kind of in, in legitimacy and importance and things, right? And in a way, I sort of never questioned the idea of authenticity because, uh, um, you know, you know the the machinery that rendered branding in the service of anything had its own sort of authentic reason for being. It seemed to me that was supported by you know uh, the members of the Rolling Stones or the manufacturers of a certain brand of soap or whoever it was, right? And so you fast forward now to, um, you know, the mid 20, you know, the mid 21st century and anyone can set words and type. Anyone can, you know, reach a large audience online or through their Instagram feed or through a TikTok uh, um, uh, video or, or all sorts of different things. And you sort of, uh, um, uh, suddenly see that destabilization of kind of the top-down control has been rendered almost complete. And so it's mm. become very complicated for kind of branding as a professional discipline to operate quite the same way. And I think at the same time, there's this deterioration of, uh, of you know, what conveys a brand experience to someone. You know, a lot of times, you know, again, when I started out, if you were designing a logo, your vision was you know, here's how it looks on the side of a truck. Here's how it looks on the side of a, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the top of a skyscraper. Here's how it looks on the uniforms of all the people charged with delivering the brand to the public. Here's how it looks on packaging. Uh, and, you know, now if you're designing a logo, the main thing is here's how it looks on the app that you use to launch it on your phone. And then the minute you do that, you're in the world of that experience, which is its own sort of, has a potential to be its own sort of branded experience, quote unquote. But it's much less dependent on, um, on kind of the signifiers of branding that I think are really easy to manipulate and much more dependent on whether or not you're, you're actually fulfilling a legitimate human need in a way that actually is useful and pleasing to people, right? So I think, uh, you know, now sometimes when... When I sometimes like if you get asked to do a brand for a startup, a lot of times you have to ask yourself, am I really is this a real is this a project with real legitimate purpose or am I just decorating the material that will be used to go obtain the next round of funding? You know, is the audience <laughs> the real users of whatever this product is or is it some money people who just need to be persuaded or even tricked into believing that this is a legitimate concern because it has the trappings of quote unquote branding around it. Right. Um, if you're working in the world of politics and you can see this sort of like, actually, you know, at the moment we speak, we still have this, uh, conflict, this war between Ukraine and Russia happening. And you sort of see the difference in the way that, uh, you know, Zelensky in, uh, in the Ukraine is sort of like uh, just uh, delivering, you know, what is what's being read as a perfectly authentic kind of uh, uh, sense of spirit of leadership to that country. And of course, you know, what's interesting is that he's a 
he's a former actor and comedian performer. He actually is thought to have this, you know, keen sense of how to look at and can how to look at a camera and connect with the people that are seeing his image and how to stage a handheld, you know, how to how to how to talk into a handheld phone and sort of make that feel legitimate and everything. So there's you, someone could argue there's a degree of artifice behind that, but he's doing it with such uh, uh, a plum and, uh, and effectiveness. And then you compare, someone just asked my opinion of, of what appears to be getting deployed in Russia, where oddly to my mind, they've sort of appropriated the letter Z, which doesn't occur as I understand in the Cyrillic alphabet as being their symbol of victory uh, and it's being emblazoned on all sorts of things. And you really get a sense that this is sort of like, you know, someone in their in their ministry of propaganda is kind of like just organized this thing. And actually, uh, if you sort of look at the fruits of it, it sort of looks like a fairly, you know, if, if it was an ad agency doing it on behalf of deodorant, you would say, well, this looks like a fairly effective activation of a brand for Z deodorant, Uh, you know, but it sort of has a kind of old fashioned artifice to it that doesn't kind of speak the same kind of authentic language that you see in their, um, you know, in, in their opponent in that war. Right. And it's, and I hate to kind of like, it's, you know, I think it's, you know, I apologize to everyone who hears my voice that I'm reducing what is, uh, you know, a real serious, humanitarian disaster, a war between two countries to sort of like comparing in this really shallow way to brands. But I think, um, you know, we live at a, you know, part of my lack of my lack of conviction about branding sort of may be tainted by the fact that everything is sort of being presented as a brand nowadays. And it's sort of easy to reduce everything to a brand or to elevate everything to a brand i'm not even sure to characterize everything as a brand so um <laughs> hence my own confusion about it when i'm sort of like asked to kind of practice my craft uh uh you know as a profession as i have been doing for so long um you know i do enter into it with a kind of hesitancy where i ask people are you sure you really need this is this really solved? Well, I mean, what problem is this meant to solve? And are you sure this is the best way to solve it? You know, and I sort of, I think asking those questions probably makes my response to my eventual response a little bit better. I think it's interesting the way you thinking about it. And I've spoken to you the 55th episode of this podcast. So we've been through a range of different people and I think think that one thing's come out is people think about it in very different ways. And I think you've quite a prolific creative thought around the space. You've had podcasts for years, you've published books, you've written articles, and there's a different sect in the industry which is very visual, very like how do we make this thing look good on instagram how do we make it animate beautifully how do we make it stand out on shelf and it feels like sort of the tools that are being used by the public at large sort of lean in that direction and not so much in the skepticism or critically thinking about the practice and what it means do you think that's had an 
impact on things or do you think it's sort of the evolution of our technology driving us to a certain point? Um, well, first of all, you know, Ross, as you were saying, you know, how things look on Instagram or animate beautifully or kind of present on the shelf. I love all those things. I mean, I can be as seduced by any of those things as I, as anyone else. And as I ever was, uh, you know, as a kid going through the record store bins, you know, looking at covers, you know, sorting, you know, going through someone's Instagram feed has the same effect on me, I would say. And I sort of get just as excited. And my the people that work with me will know that I am just as likely to share something that I find that just appeals to me purely visually on a visceral level as anything else, right? So I, I, I still have that in me as a way to react to the visual world around me. Um, you know, I, I, but I do think, I mean, you sort of like raise the idea, is this about technical, technological evolution? Uh, and I think, you know, it probably is obvious to anyone that heard my previous speech that, you know, the big difference is between then and now is technology. You know, the, uh, um, the idea really that, um, you know, any 12 or 13 year old with a, uh, Instagram account is sort of, you know, has this publishing power at their disposal that only a tiny handful of people had 50 years ago, you know, um, they're making the kinds of decisions that uh, a magazine editor or a newspaper publisher or any media executive would have been making. You know, what you know, what image do I want to put out there into the world? How does this contribute to the way people think of my product? Um, you know, what's how do I how do I get more people to look at what I'm putting out there? How do I get more people to like what I'm putting out there? Right. Um, you know, and that used to be, you know, people would gather in conference rooms in the tops of skyscrapers to figure that stuff out. And now we're inviting, you know, you know, millions and millions of people, so, you know, uh, from every walk of life and, uh, you know, at including as as has been observed like really young ages to sort of like think like that and i think it sort of is um uh uh you know once that's happening you're i mean the audience that uh, uh, a so-called professional like uh uh like me or you bring to the uh, equation is really quite different isn't it you know because we're not you know we're not kind of being the uh uh, the midwife of information to an audience who can't fathom where it all comes from or what it all means and has to sort of, you know, lack of any other uh, instruction, just take it all fairly credulously, uh, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people are, um, you know, they're probably more skeptical. They're more, uh, you know, uh, they're both more skeptical. They're, they're skeptical and more trusting. They're uh, they're more buried under information and probably less capable of processing it. You know, so I think it's uh, it's definitely a different age, and it sort of all contributes to um, the fact that uh, you know it's you know there's just an ever higher premium put on things that seem 
to uh, seem to be authentic, seem to be about something that really is important, right? And, and, and not everything is meant, you know, it's nice if, you know, not everything is important. And I think I'm probably not alone that I spend more time than I'd like to admit, you know, scrolling through things <laughs> on social media that are just utter, you know, nonsense and just there to distract me from the horrors of everyday life, perhaps. But, uh, um, you know, you really do, you know, you're attracted to things that sort of seem to be, you know, that's, that's, that seem to be about something that, uh, that feels real, I think. And that's, and, you know, to the degree that designers are asked to, to synthesize things that are meant to present as real as a real, you know, ends up being a, you know, a contradiction and a challenge, right? I think it is interesting. I was shopping with my wife on the weekend and she picked up a bottle of um, nail polish remover and she was like, I've been buying this brand because my mother did. And that's 25 years of her purchasing this product because some advert or some something forever ago convinced her mom to make that decision. And it's now deeply rooted in her behavior. It's not even a choice as to what to look at. And I think in a way, brands help people navigate the world. They help people understand if they're making a good choice or a bad choice. So I think the the deep principles of it still work. Just the volume seems to have exploded to such an extent. I mean, yeah, how do I, you navigate that? You you work all the way on massive brands like MasterCard, all the way down to a book cover for a single author. How do you sort of navigate that in this time? Um, well, it's actually interesting. I mean, because the, the 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 story you tell about your wife Ross is actually, you know, everyone is every everyone kind of goes through life like that, right? And uh, um, you know, you're actually not, you know, you don't wake up every morning hoping to be surprised and delighted nonstop from the minute you open your eyes till the time you go to bed, you know. 16 hours later or whenever it is, uh, you know, you, you, what really gets you through the day are, you know, periods that are about routine and habituation and comfort in a way. Right. And, um, and, and one of the things that, you know, if you want to call it brands or design or, you know, how we shape the material world is, you know, providing people with the, the kind of just visual and experiential cues that help them work their way through that, uh, you know, through, through, you know, an environment that's, you know, complicated and, uh, potentially bewildering. Right. So, you know, if you're looking at a book cover, let's say, um, you know, your direct charge is to, um, your clients, usually the publisher, uh, the publisher's interest is in attracting people, who are like who are likely to be interested in the book and its content, and how do you clearly signal that to them? Uh, 
it used to be that that was happening in a bookshop, uh, but it was also, you know, now it happens sometimes in a bookshop, but it also happens, uh, you know, you have to design that cover. So if someone's holding it up on a television show, it reads properly. If it shows up really small as a, uh, you know, uh, a thumbnail image in a, on a commerce site, it has to read. So, uh, you know, you've got a bunch of like physical things you sort of have to satisfy just to have the, the cover be legible. Um, there's also a whole series of cues that really sophisticated book cover designers manipulate in terms of signaling to people, is this fiction or nonfiction? Is this, um, a timely book or more of a, you know, scholarly history? Is this, if it's fiction, is it, you know, something you take to the beach or is it something you have to really throw your brow over and it's more challenging? And there's also, and it's funny, it's sort of like you talk to people who do that for a living, they can kind of really tell you the, you know, that, you know, this kind of fiction title, you're asked to kind of give it this sort of characteristics on the cover. And part of it is sort of like, you know, as a designer, when you hear those things, you sort of, uh, you wince and you, you resist to a certain degree because you think, yeah. oh, no, I don't want to do that. But on the other hand, it sort of is you know, people have to be given reliable cues to navigate their choices, right? And if you make a fiction, if you make a, a, a beach read look like, um, you know, a sophisticated book of political analysis, um, it won't reach the readers. And the few people that actually buy it because they're interested in political analysis are going to be disappointed when they start reading and find that it's some sultry romance or whatever it is, you know? And so we, a lot of it is sort of like being true to what's in the package on one hand. Right. And, um, and th that truth is unstable. There's no, you know, no one, there's, I, usually there aren't any, you know, it, it's really just by general consensus, we've sort of de decided certain things look certain ways. Right. Sometimes they're, they're dictated by function, but a lot of times they're just completely, they're nearly arbitrary. And, you know, even the alphabet is, is a case of something that's arbitrary. There's no real reason why those letters are shaped the way they're shaped, uh, um, you know, or that, you know, that each of those letters is assigned a different phonetic sound. But somehow, you know, we've all agreed that's how we're going to do it. And, uh, um, you know, and you line up enough of those letters, you've got words, sentences, paragraphs, and eventually books, right? And then likewise, uh, you've got a, um, uh, you know, you've got then readers who are out there navigating things from their own points of views, which are shifting and a little bit unstable too. So I think, you know, it's, um, uh, design that, that's sort of what makes design fun. And of course, just like in the, in Darwinian natural selection, a mutant happens, some mutation happens, and someone kind of designs something that is a little bit different or a little bit off or a little bit, you know, kind of breaks some rule, then suddenly that establishes, if it's successful, it establishes sort of potentially a new branch of, of development that other people then start building on, right? Um, and so, and, and that's true if you're designing a logo for a multinational corporation, there's some aspect of those of balancing what people are expecting versus what they might find pleasantly surprising. And whether you're trying to provide comfort or stimulation with the design is something you just always have to be kind of making a day-to-day -day calculation on. And to me, sort of, you know, just thinking of book covers, particularly, I don't design that many book covers, but I really, you know, the, the covers of books that I grew up with as a kid are one of the things that drove me into 
that made me excited about becoming a graphic designer. And, you know, the to me, sort of like the highest state that a design can get is when, you know, I can look at, a, you know, I'll encounter, I'll be moving things around on my shelf or it'll even something will pop up online and it'll be a book that I really loved as a, uh, you know, as a teenager. And I may not have really looked at that cover for decades. Then suddenly I see it and it's like hearing a a forgotten but familiar song. It'll like really <laughs> have that sort of impact on me. And to, you know, to create something, to rep- you know, to create a work of art, one, the book itself, but to create a signifier for it in the form of the cover is, you know, and to have it, have that effect on people, have it, you know, have it move them, have it break their heart. You know, I think that, you know, that's what musicians traffic in all the time. I think it's a bigger, we, we graphic designers don't imagine that we're doing it, but in our own way, we are sort of like doing it, I think. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there are products that you want exponentially more than what they are you like i have to own this thing and i will move there no matter what and i think a lot of that is those visual signifiers that you've sort of filled with meaning and gone this represents who i am or what i want to say to the world and i'm gonna buy it or i'm gonna save up for it or i'm gonna collect it and then cherish it forever. And I think design and branding are some of the tools that bring that to life. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, uh, um, you know, all so many of those things, and I think this is implied by what he just said, Russ, uh, so many of those things are beyond the function of what the thing you know beyond whatever function that thing is meant to deliver right and i think Mm -hmm. that uh uh designers who are kind of taught you know form follows function as a starting point for design problem solving which i think is completely legitimate um you know always have to remember that you know what really is making design contribute to culture are those other things that come into play and as you're talking, we're talking about books, and I'm reminded of a, a panel I was on with my mentor, Massimo Vignelli, years after I had worked for him. We were both, I'd been a pentagram for a long time, but we were reunited on this panel about book design. And he was in a particularly perverse mood, if you ask me, because he decided that on the panel, he wanted to take the position that book design was now an obsolete art and that the information that books conveyed would be best uh, conveyed uh, digitally and that a single format for words and pictures could be devised that could be the, um, that could convey any and all content in a, you know, uniformly reliable way, which would mean that all the decisions that he had spent his life making about what typeface is, what, what what kind of grid would underlie the layout, how the layout would be deployed, how big the margins are, what the binding would be, what the overall trim size of the book would be, et cetera, et cetera. All of that he just thought was obsolete as a, you know, those were, that was just the, uh, uh, you know, the antique trappings of a former age that were, you know, that now 
the information, the visual information and the verbal information would all be liberated from this coffin of <laughs> typefaces and paperweights and binding and stuff like that. And I and I, I don't think he really believed that. I think he just was trying to be provocative on the panel. And he was. It was good. But uh, I remember saying, you know, if that was what human beings wanted from the world, um, someone would say, look, um, I've, con- I've convened a panel of nutritionists and we've come up with exactly um, what human beings should consume three times a day. And um, this has exactly the right vitamins, the exactly the right minerals, the right number of calories and everything else. And it just is this grayish sludge that everyone on earth can consume, you know, at, uh, at 8 a.m., then at lunchtime, and then at 6 p.m., and then go to bed. And everyone will be happy and healthy, and no one would ever have to worry again about recipes or cooking or shopping, because we could all just kind of eat this gray sludge, and it would keep us alive and, in fact, healthy, right? And then he realized, well, why isn't that, why doesn't that happen? It's because people take so much pleasure from cooking, the ritual of cooking, the ritual of, of hospitality, of sharing food with friends of uh, of, a, of a parent feeding his or her children uh, you know and and how each of those rituals each of those traditions have been affected by you know what is available to grow locally what the local technology and mores afford you know so that makes you know, there isn't even one kind of mexican food there are you know a dozen two dozen kinds of regional mexican food if you really get into it and likewise with everything else right and the joy of those small differences is what makes human beings human it's what makes us interesting you know and i think mm-hmm. that uh that's why every you know that's why i like the the problem you know there's no such thing as like a universal way to uh to deliver the information that a book delivers, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's destined to find a different form and someone right now is inventing a new form, maybe a radical unheard of revolutionary form to deliver that, to solve that problem that people have been solving now for, you know, for a thousand years, basically. Right. So, uh, uh, and, and thus it is with architecture and fashion and all these other things too. And I think, you know, how you navigate that, you know, that's, and, and like, and then at the end of the day, you're in a, you're in a, in a shop with your wife and she's picking out some nail polish remover. And there's something about that package, that name, the way the bottle feels in her hand, uh, the way that the, um, probably the way the stuff smells, uh, the way that the, um, you know, the, the way she's accustomed to dispensing it and rubbing it on her nails, all of those things are all part of, uh, of some familiar, uh, you know, ritual, if you will, or at least habit that she has with that stuff that, um, you know, someone could come in and invent a new way to do it. And someone else may have a completely different way to do it. That's as familiar to them. But I think all of those things are kind of, um, as, as arbitrary and as inconvenient or maybe even inefficient as they all are. Those are what make, you know, that's, that's the stuff of life, right. And designers, wittingly and unwittingly contribute to it all the time but i'm i mean interested your sort of interests seem quite broad and i know you read a fair amount how do you sort of 
extract information and enjoy different mediums and pull that across into the work that you and your team deliver every day because it feels a lot wider than just I'm on a design site looking at other design and I'm inspired by that orange so I'm going to do something orange too um I think the um I mean, like I sort of, um, I actually don't consider myself a particularly educated or even deep or smart person, to tell you the truth. I know enough educated, deep, smart people to know the <laughs> difference between me and the real thing. Um, I know, if, I, if there's anything I know, it's I know a lot, I know a little bit about a lot of things. And I, that may be partly as a defense mechanism because um, of a discovery I made that I haven't that I've been quite vocal about. I always mention it if I'm teaching, which is that I really feel, you know, you're a better designer when you're interested in the subject matter. And so some people, and most people when they hear that, they think, oh, so I want to design stuff for subjects I'm interested in. And that's one way to interpret it. But I the way I interpreted it was the more things I can become interested in, the better chance I have of being a better designer, right? You're kind of casting your net more broadly. So a lot of the education I received was at the hands of clients who brought me into worlds that I didn't know anything about before, but I had a real curiosity about. And I'm, I'm really aware of this because occasionally I get involved with something that I cannot make myself be interested in. And it's just as torture for me. I just like hate it because <laughs> I just feel I'm, you know, picking colors and move in doing design things to disguise the fact that I actually don't know or care that much about the subject. And there's very few, you know, I have to admit, there's not that many of those things that actually fall in that category. And I become, you know, one thing that I've gotten better at, I'm not sure I've gotten better at a lot of things I've gotten older, but I've gotten better at kind of uh, avoiding those things uh, before I actually get myself ensnared in them. And so, um, I'll, you know, when I'm, I've actually, I'm actually not as, it's amazingly, it's amazing to me how, how poorly read I am and how little I know about so many things. But I, but I know enough to have a conversation sometimes with people about things, to ask the right questions, to kind of find my own way into a subject and to, uh, and, and to, and to figure out why someone else is excited about something, right? So mm -hmm. I can listen to a podcast that's all about celebrity gossip and, and literally not, not know fully 90% of the names that they're referencing. But there's just something about kind of the sense of this media ecosystem that I find interesting and appealing and the fact that the hosts of the podcast are so knowing about what they're talking about and, 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 and amusingly knowing about it makes it entertaining for me to listen to. And some people would say, I don't know what they're talking about. This is boring. Turn it off. Right. But, um, you know, and then you then often I'll come out the other end and then some, someone will mention the name of some stupid celebrity and I'll say, Oh, you know, she just broke up with that other one, right? And like, I'll know, I'll like have this fun fact at my disposal and whether or not that's an impressive thing to know. It's not an impressive thing to know, but, uh, um, but it's, you know, it's uh, a moment in that day where I'm actually connecting with someone about some, some bit of trivia. And, um, and by the same token, I'll listen to something that's, you know, more, 
you know, more supposedly serious or erudite and learn something that way too. And it, it all just seems like it's interesting things that are out there happening in the world. But I do think that, you know, my capacity to kind of make myself be interested in the subject matter that I'm working with has a direct relationship to how good the work I am able to do for it is. Mm. I also think, I mean, I guess the the theme coming out for me is we live in this age where there's more brands, more communication, more video, more stuff than we've ever been. But the sort of intention and detail and often something that sounds like it might be not the most important thing can make a huge impact on the human who engages with it. And therefore you can create that emotional bond or form a little spark of importance in their mind. And, and that's, has held true for for decades but the tools Mm -hmm. are very very different yeah 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 i mean you just look at the world of politics and uh often what stays with people isn't a intricate policy pronouncement that is you know addressing you know some issue of real concern to the voters but some offhand remark, some gap, some improvised response, some, you know, some bit of trivia actually will seize people's imagination and kind of give them a point of entry to a world that could actually be otherwise very complicated to them or tap into something positive in, in, in their nature or dark and negative in their nature by the same token. You know, and I think it's, uh, it's often irrational and unpredictable and um you know for that reason kind of hard to orchestrate and control you know and i think uh um you know as you see you know brands try to navigate a world where things kind of become viral on social media and trying to understand how to provoke that virality in a way that's premeditated and controlled in a way, as opposed to, um, you know, uh, you know, and at the same time, th- those same people sometimes are predisposed to kind of resist things that sort of seem to be going viral that they're not controlling, you know, oh my God, you know, uh, this is out there. What do we do now? And uh, not understanding though, that's all part of the same process and part of the Mm. same ecosystem that we live in today and you have to figure out some way to to negotiate all those things with authority as you're uh, um, you know as you're making your way through right so i mean i think we're almost out of time and i want to steal this opportunity to ask you which is the the brand that makes you desire their product or service or experience in an irrationally large way and why? Good question. I, Cause I'm, I'm actually, I'm one of these people that can, like, I don't actually like shop, you know, particularly I don't like shopping that much. I don't like, um, there are very few things that I say I enjoy like buying. I like, 
I just bought a car and I just hate buying cars. I just hate it. I just ride through the whole process. It makes me just so ill at ease when I'm doing it. Um, uh, although, you know, this is, this is, this sounds like a cop out and I, it's, it's, you're asking for a brand actually, rather than a, uh, an object, but, um, uh, you know, um, there, you know, there are like, um, you know, to the degree that a cultural institution is a brand, you know, there's like, um, you know, a place like the, um, the New York Public Library or the Museum of Modern Art or the Brooklyn Academy of Music, um, you know, they can have this hold on me, you know, that is really powerful. And part of what they're, they're doing is that they're actually a channel in a way for ideas and for experiences for, uh, for content as people call it nowadays. And there's, you know, in a way, um, they're anticipating, you know, they anticipated sort of the things we now think of as, as more deliberate channels for those things, whether it's media channels or digital channels, whatever it is. But, uh, um, you know, the, you know, if, if someone, if someone said, you know, you're, you have to go to the museum of modern art every day for the rest of your life, that's your punishment. I would be like, what do I have to, you know, what crime, what crime or crimes do you have to commit to qualify for this punishment? And I will start, uh, undertaking them immediately, you know? And so I think, the um, uh, I, I mean, I, 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 to me, you know, to walk to a place where you can go have an experience and walk out unburdened with, uh, uh, you know, with anything you have to take care of, anything that might break that you'd have to fix, anything you might have to, that you'd run out of and have to refill, which is true with almost anything else you acquire, right? Um, you know, those kind of places just seem so powerful to me. And, uh, and again, um, you know, the best of them create this compact with their audience where um, you, you know, after a while, you're not going there because there's a certain thing that you want to see or hear or look at there, but you just sort of like trust them to surprise you with something that on the marquee over the door, as you're walking in, you may have never heard of this artist, this performer, this exhibit, this, um, uh, this, uh, um, this event. And you'll, you know, but you'll tr sort of like trust that place to deliver something to you that, you know, will enlarge you as a person, right? So I, I, I sort of, I have to admit, I really admire those brands. And, and I think, you know, there are publishing imprints that work that way. There are record labels that work that way. There are, uh, um, uh, um, there have been movie studios historically that have worked that way. And there are cultural institutions that work that way. And I think those are some of my favorite brands. I think uh, um, in a way, if, um, you know, uh, if, you know, the sort of um, ability to fulfill a promise uh, and to engender trust that brands like that demonstrate are really what every brand on earth is looking for in a way. That's what they're, that's what they aspire to, even if they're selling nail polish remover, you know, they want to sort of somehow have insinuated themselves into someone's life that they have that degree of familiarity and trust. Right. And uh, uh, 
it's a very, you know, it's a hard thing to invent out of nothing and sell to someone, which is what people who do what we do are often asked to do. Uh, instead, what you can do is just figure out, you know, is is there something there that's real and true that has the capacity to turn into um, uh, a focal point for that sort of uh, of, 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 mag- of magnetism and trust and and capacity for generation. And I think, uh, um, you know, looking for those things out there, whether it's to kind of create them or to react to them, to enjoy them, to even resist them is, you know, that's what makes us, again, human beings, what makes life interesting. Well, Michael, thank you very much. I really yeah, enjoyed you. our chat. And thank you for humoring me my silly questions. Uh, I really Not enjoyed silly at all. That. They're really interesting. I, I really enjoyed that. Thank you, Ross. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, and we'll catch you all in the next one. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season. And we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us or make a suggestion reach out at www.nicework.co.za. And if you're one of those really old school people, send us a letter and we'll make you a mixtape.